Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Brian Kamenetsky, Andy Kamenetsky. It is Tuesday afternoon, the 19th, Andy, of December, and we are joined in studio today, very exciting, by uh, ESPN's NBA writer, uh, Kevin Arnovitz. And we're going to talk about the NBA and your story about Lonzo Ball, and then we're going to pivot and talk about what we really came here to talk about, which is... The 35th anniversary of the release of the movie Tootsie uh, came out December 17th, 1982, and from past conversations with Kevin over the years, I know that he is a huge fan of the movie, as are the two of us, so it immediately popped in my mind, let's get into it with this anniversary. The old Arnovitz Tootsie podcast. <laughs> you know, just, Can we just get to the basketball and <laughs> just, just, you know, I, I hate to hit all the cliches of your typical uh, ESPN podcast, right. you know. Going over Tootsie, you know it's, it's the usual thing. Well, if you look, if you don't like it because you've heard it too many times, feel free to stop. I suppose. All right, um, we'll start with Lonzo real quick, though, only because you wrote this a really cool feature about Lonzo Ball in the uh, newest edition of ESPN the magazine, and it the, the approach of it was, I thought, pretty interesting. Just because it, it, a lot of it seemed to me, at least, to be trying to figure out like what is Lonzo. In today's NBA, where you're, where we have, we're, we're trying to figure out what a star is, what a point guard's supposed to be, and all these things. What was your kind of approach to trying to figure out how to dive into Lonzo? Right. I mean, the idea kind of came from a series of conversations I had with people around the league, scouts, executives, coaches. And I noticed this pattern, which is you start asking, hey, what do you think of Lonzo? I mean, he's this polarizing, not, not as a personality, but a polarizing skill set. And I found that there was a universal love and appreciation, kind of from the purist's standpoint of how he plays the game. I and mean, all those cliches of playing the right way. I mean, the idea that there's this young player in, in, a, in a let's build a brand era who wakes up every morning wanting, how can I get my pass to the teammate where, where, where and how he likes it? And they would talk for 30 and 45 seconds about his vision, how uncommon it was at that age. And then you'd pivot the conversation, okay, is he a star? And then there would be this pause and a certain consideration and a series of disclaimers, but all of which amounted to, I'm not sure. And the the, the notion was that could a player like that actually even be a star in a league where the point guard position has been completely redefined in the last decade, where we are now in the era of Steph Curry and Russell Westbrook and Kyrie Irving and, and name whoever else. Even Chris Paul, the supposed pure point guard, is actually, by the standards of any other era, a past second point guard. I mean, he's a scoring point guard. So that was sort of the origin and which then means, well, what do we mean by superstar? Well, in the case of Lonzo, the way it was defined for us by first LeVar Ball, but then, you know, Magic and Palenka, transcendent. You know, I mean, Lonzo, we were told, was going to be the franchise face moving forward before he'd even played. Don't break all my su- records, Lonzo. A, yeah, before he'd even played a summer league game, much less an actual NBA game. So I, I guess through that prism, we'd say the the ability to change a franchise through his presence. I mean, I, I guess as defined by Magic Johnson. It is, it, and listen, I have so much respect. I wrote this last night about the Lakers. that There's no team in sports better at telling a story. But it's such a bloody Laker thing to a way to approach it. Like, like 
God forbid, just endow him with the infrastructure and the support. You don't have to. Def- Why do you have to articulate your expectations? This is very Kobe esque. Well, well, if he's serious, then he'll take us up on these expectations and even exceed them, rather than just kind of letting the kid. Well, I, I will, I'll push back a little bit on that. I agree with you. There's always an element of that, particularly when your GM is Rob Palenka. <laughs> um, but. Some of this is, though, I think is the sales job that the front office is trying to do to prove to the rest of the league that things are different again. And the Lakers, these Lakers, are much more like your old Lakers, which were well-run, which were first-class in every way. What's that the Lakers are back? Right. I mean, they they were trying to send a message that the Lakers were back. And back, but back also means we have star caliber pieces around us that will excite you so that you will come play with us. The rest of the league already wants to play with Lonzo. I mean that again, this is not me paraphrasing. This is what Magic right. said. By the way, all of this comes with its own set of problems. This is not a, a sales pitch that I particularly like and gets to your basic point which is let the kid play as opposed to under promise over delay. I, I just don't listen. I'm so I'm for the sake of disclosure. I'm rooting for Alonzo. Sure, I, I'm truly rooting for Alonzo. Andy's rooting against him because I, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I I kind of agree with those purists. I'm a romantic the way those coaches and scouts who are essentially they're in this business because they love basketball and the idealization of, of basketball is fun to think about. And you rarely does a young player come along who, who embodies that. But I just feel like. Look, what is your goal? Is your goal that he become that? This idea that, well, you know, yeah, we'll set the expectations because he's a real franchise player. He'll right. he'll meet them. This this is the kind of thing that would inspire him. Well, how on earth we are the Los Angeles Lakers? How on earth could that uh, could those declarations possibly retard his progress? And I just, it's just such a the funny the irony is is in a in a in a, in a gesture to prove they are a new Laker. They're Laker franchise, they're actually behaving like oh, we, old. We, we've said this all the time, Kevin, that, I mean, basically it's meet the new boss same as the old boss. Right. The, Just the, do the, the old plan, the new plan is to do the old plan better. Right. The, the new plan is Magic Johnson well is more charismatic than Mitch. And Rob Palinka, everybody has more faith in and thinks is smarter than Jim Buss. So old plan with the new people and go. Yeah. I, I just, it's the exact same plan. But I, you know, I watched that press conference. That Lonzo at the right at the last thing of the old facility where Magic points to the rafters or on the wall to all the jerseys and say, and you're going to have a jersey up there one day. And I, I just like I, I just don't get it. I, I don't know why. I, I don't. By the way, and I don't think a, a kid lacks the fortitude if for whatever reason that isn't something that inspires him. It, it just I don't think it's putting him in a position to succeed, and it and it worries me. And I think what you just said it's is something, Brian, and I. I mean, we vital, agree with right. you. What you just said to me is incredibly important because part of what I think the Lakers have done a very poor job of over the last few seasons is explaining to people accurately who we just drafted. Who is it that we just got? Like Brandon Ingram, you know, Matt. And some of this gets back to Magic again this year, but even last, you know, last year they were a little better. They took a lot of expectations off. But Magic comes in, talks about Brandon Ingram scoring twenty five points a game and all these other and all this stuff, and kind of 
if you ask Luke Walton, he's like, I just want him playing basketball. He's good when he fills up a box score and all this other stuff. D'Angelo Russell was a little bit Lonzo-y before Lonzo. He's gonna, he's a visionary passer. He's all this. No, he's not. He's a, he's really a, a kind of a combo guard who likes to shoot and he's an offensive guy. And the answer is we don't know exactly who but, he is but yet. He, but, he, but, but, but that's it is. You right. don't know that until he starts playing, especially. And Lonzo, because he's been packaged as, granted, a passing wizard, but also a transcendent star in the city where Kobe Bryant still kind of lingers, is, you know, I th- the, the, the expectation of what he is supposed to look like when he is playing at the kind of level in the way that we want him to play, it looks different to Luke Walton and it looks different to Rob Palinka than it's going to look to a fan who's maybe a custom accounting stats or all these other things. And so, particularly when he has these stretches where he shoots 22% or whatever it is, which is objectively bad by any standard, people look at him going, what the bleep is going on here? Who is this guy? But the sad irony of it is, and I think Luke actually gets it, is that I can't recall a point guard prospect you know, picked in the top 10 or 15 in the last 5 to 10 years who is less it was going to be less revealing of his true talents in the first year, or for that matter, two seasons of his career. I mean, this is a, a wine that you, as they say in the wine world, you lay down in the cellar for, you know, let him kind of, there are a lot of tannins there that need to sort of be, be worked. I mean, he's a different, and this is sort of the piece, which is he's not a high pick and rolled explosive circa 2016, 17, 18 point guard. He is a different creature with different skills. He is a, he is, he's a series of contradictions in kind of a beautiful way. Um, he is a, you know, he's actually, you know, He's a great passer, not a great handler. He's very good in the high, in a high tempo game. Um, yet he's also not a, not a great kind of drag pick and roll point guard. Like he's all these interesting, conglomerations of skills and, and non-skills, and I think the trick for an organization is not to say, oh, he's going to be transcendent. No, no, he's not going to be transcendent. He is going to succeed wildly in the precise context uh, where he can succeed. He's not somebody who can succeed in every single context, he could, he, but you need to build the so context to, right, around it. It's right. interesting it's you say that. It's a deliberate process, it, Lonzo. It's interesting you say that, Kevin. I, I've never really thought about it this way until you just spelled it out, but Lonzo, I mean, if you look at the things that he's doing well this season, which is pretty much everything but shooting, as far as, like, from the beginning the way, of the season. 60.6% effective field goal percentage since December 5th. Right. right. It's, five, it's, it's, it's in that piece we published that. We had to update it on digitally. <laughs> well, he's right. been he should tell you you're welcome. Last five games, he's over 45% from the floor, and I want to say up in, the, in a respectable third right. or something. It's, it's starting to creep up, but if you're looking at from the beginning of the season to where we are now, if you remove shooting... He's doing everything else reasonably well or quite well. But I think he's got a potential to be an all sure. a defender. I, I agree. He's His much better. Has been significantly better than anybody expected. Oh, it, it's it's he rebounds like crazy. So that speaks to versatility. Yeah. But you also, and I think you brought this up, and this is really important when you think about you know, Lonzo's development and his potential. Right now, though, there's a lot of specificity to the way he plays even with that versatility of what he can bring to a stat sheet. You know, he's like a very specific, versatile player, if that makes sense. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And and we talked about this before. I think people need to stop with the point guard comps, whether it's Magic or Jason Kidd. And to me, think about Draymond. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things that you did in the piece. When you talk about Lonzo and you try to imagine a trajectory, I think Draymond Green 
and look, I, Draymond has a PF by his name, and and Lonzo has a PG. I don't care. Like the truth is, is that that Luke, I think, very intelligently is designing a new system. I don't, I don't think he's got the parts to do it yet, but I, I think that is the way people need to imagine the growth and maturation of Lonzo. Ball. Why? What is what? Why is the quick? Because you're talking about Luke. So much of what we talk about is like trying to import that ethic of what they do in Golden State. Why is Draymond a better comp than the standard Jason Kidd comp? Or the Steph, if you're looking at Golden State. Right. Everyone would right. naturally make him Steph. Because I think there's going to be, and we are truly, I think, in a positionless era. I know we've been saying that for 10, 12 years. I don't think it's been true until the last couple of years. Uh, this notion, and you hearing more broadcasters say, play through this guy, play through that guy. Who is the fulcrum of your offense? Um, you know, Draymond's not a guy you would ever say, oh, he's a pick and roll. Pal. I mean, he is a guy that is sort of a hub for the offense. You move, motion revolves around him. He can rebound and go the way Lonzo is going to rebound and go. He is a great pass-ahead uh, forward and you know, a player. Let's not even say forward. Uh, he is going, I, I think, I mean, I think Lonzo's looking at a career where I, I, I would say, hey, averaging 12, 8, and, you know, really, you know, 12, 12, and 8 with a plus 21 bias. I mean, that's sort of, if you want to look at it from a statistical standpoint, I think he is going to have a profile in that player similarity index that's going to look a lot more like, more like Draymond Green than it will pick your top 10 point guard. So he's almost like, I mean, this is, again, speaking to the specificity of Lonzo, in some ways he's almost a hub point guard. Yes. Exactly. Which you don't see. I mean, that's, it's not something that people think about with a point guard. Right. Like a, like a wheel-greasing point guard. Yeah, it's like, and then you start looking for comps, and it's like, all right, so you immediately say, all right, who's not a kind of a system? Like, oh, George Hill? No, because George Hill needs to play slow. Lonzo needs to play fast. Like, he is totally, every time you think you have a comp for Lonzo, you realize, no, 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 that doesn't work. Which I think is kind of cool, which to me makes him one of the most interesting players to come into this league in some time. So, as Lakers are working on rebuilding, and obviously, I mean, look, you can, you can be a bad three-point shooting team and maybe cobble together a, a competent offense. You can be a bad free-throw shooting team and maybe uh, cobble together a competent offense. You can't be the worst three-point shooting team and the worst free-throw shooting team and have anything but the worst, one of the worst offenses in the league, and that's what the Lakers are. When you kind of design based on what they have and the, the whole plan of what they're going to go out and do, obviously you have, to fi- you have to find guys that are going to work with Lonzo. And the way he plays, is it Brandon Ingram works with him? Do they, you know, do you go get, do you spend, do you put more higher priority on getting J.J. Redick in the offseason than you do Paul George? If he can come with, you know, maybe Paul George yeah. is a bad example because he no, can no, shoot no, the no, three. No, 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 I mean, I, But you understand what I'm getting yeah, at? Like, I totally get what you're getting at. A, a, a specific skill set like J.J. Redick over a guy who might be a higher profile star. Because you need to surround Lonzo with the pieces that will make Lonzo work. Yeah. I mean, I love J.J. and he has the profile. I, I think from a team-building standpoint, you know, there, there's so many on one hand and the other hand. It's like, I like Brendan, Brendan Ingram. I don't know that he works terribly well with what Luke is trying to do. I think at this point, because you're the Lakers, you have a certain luxury, which is stars want to, by and large, be in Los Angeles. And I think they probably want to be with the Lakers more than they did a year or two ago. Um, I, I, I think Luke Walton's generally liked, I think. you know, Liza, but, but here's what I think you do. You continue to harvest these assets. I mean, Julius Randle, you know, in, in two, Monday night's game against Golden State was, was a good example of this. Like, increase that guy's value. Increase Kuzma's value. Increase Brandon Ingram's value. Uh, you know, KCB's on a one-year deal. That doesn't matter. Just continue to build assets. And at a certain point, there will be a superstar 
who you like, who is is system proof, who will want to be elsewhere. They'll be looking for a hall, and you can, <coughs> you know, you can basically aggregate assets and get him. And and that might mean, by the way, that may mean the beloved Kuzma is gone. But what if you can spin him into a top ten player, right? Like I like Kuzma long term for this team, but I think right now the focus is. Building these assets, the, heck of a nickname, the beloved. Yes, I, the biggest concern I have with that, and look, that's I think in a lot of ways the perfect world for the Lakers front office because it's very clear they want to jump the line if possible. I mean, you know, they they've as been, they should. No, it's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that instinct as long as you make sure that it works out. The biggest concern that I have for this team is they're already starting to play a certain degree of favorites in terms of making it clear, like okay. Ingram, we picture you around for the long haul. Uh, Kuzma, seems like you're around for the long haul. Jordan Clarkson, maybe not. Julius Randle, not sure about that, even I though... it's organic. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily... No, no, but it is, but it's, it's not totally, because last year's cover... The cover of the media guide last year was Nance, Randle, Russell, Clarkson... Who am I forgetting? Uh, Ingram. Ingram. Uh, we call it, we actually called it in the postgame show, we would call it the media guide lineup. And like we wanted to see the media guide lineup more often. This year on the cover of the media guide, obviously Russell is gone. The cover of the media guide is Lonzo and Ingram, and like these ghostly Periphery, apparitions KCPs, of KCP, uh, KCP and Brooke Lopez, and, and, and Randall, Randall and Clarkson. Yeah, see, like, it's literally eyes. they're almost like on the outside looking yeah. in, like they're like looking through a glass window at Ingram and Lonzo. It, it, it is it is so on the nose; it's hard to get over. And the Mook painting, or it, it is. <laughs> I mean, and the concern that I have for the team. Is, you know, they, they've so clearly pushed their chips and then repushed them and repushed them into the center of the table for 2018. And that they may end up, A, not getting who they want next summer, because there's always a chance that LeBron doesn't come, Paul George doesn't come, whoever, but also that they may end up hurting some of the development of their young players that could be good for them, but they're not as committed to now. I think they're doing okay. I mean, I really, look, I, Randall's obviously getting jobbed a little bit. I think this is kind of a function. I mean, part of it is his Kuzma's Sure, he's played much better than anybody thought. Right. And, and so, I mean, you know, and I, I think, and, and that's very clear. There's a redundancy there. I mean, I, I think Clarkson's in his preferred function as sort of a, oh, sure. essentially a backup combo yeah. point. I mean, I don't know that, I, I mean, I'm, it's funny. Here I am defending the Lakers, a, a franchise I've been really rough on, but like, I think it's fine. Like, I really, like, look, there's, Inevitably, you're never going to be able to maximize, almost by definition, the value of every single prospect and asset on you. I mean, play, guys play at the expense of other guys. Um, I, but I, I, I think they're doing okay. I mean, I think there are a lot of interesting young players. And look, I, I don't know that there's a huge market for Jordan Clarkson. I don't even know what the market is for Julius Randle. I mean, he's sort of a, a non-stretchy, old-fashioned well, in a, energy In guy. a vacuum, I think it would be pretty reasonable in a in a year where he's a restricted free agent. You're going to have to pony If you trade for him, you're going to have to pony up $18, $19, 20000000 million for him. Right. I'm not sure it's as strong. No. Um, I want to ask one thing before we move on to the really important stuff. Has this year impacted your view of Paul George at all in terms of what's going on? What's in going on? Well, like, is he the kind of guy that you want to give the kind of money to, the kind of length, and the kind of you know what he's going to command to come be the best player on your team? Is, you know, whatever it might be, is this impacted at all? Yeah, I mean, the, the Thunder is such kind of a such a like a sweet generous situation. Like, like I don't recall. 
I mean, even do you understand what he just said? No, but it's a one-off. Like there's no comp. There's no comp to the thunder. Like not even like. I figured if I kept a straight face, you're just gonna let it go. No, I had no idea. I'll look it up later. I think like the 2010-11 Heat, even from a usage standpoint, like putting together three of like the highest usage guys ever. Like and it, you know, it, it's just it's unprecedented. And I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I think it was smart. I mean, okay, see, so I'd have done it. Yeah, I would have done it too. And I, I even like the mellow trade, even not being a mellow guy, just like from an accounting standpoint. But I just don't think you can. I, let's put it this way: I can't reappraise my my perception of Paul George based on this bizarro situation in OKC. I just can't. I tend to agree with you. I I just I look at what they're doing there. And so much of this, to me at least, seems made more complicated than it should be. Like, in the, you know, and I have not watched every single Thunder game this year. But the games I've seen, like, I haven't seen as much staggering of Russ and Paul George and, and Mello that, to me, would have mitigated a lot of the getting to know each other for the big three. Like, I, I figured this would be easier than some people expected because I'm like, I don't think they're going to play together all the time. And the games that I've seen, I, I've been shocked by how much the three of them are together all the time, and then how much a reserve unit with no scores plays without them. See, I, I think what people miss is, I think it. The instinct is when you have guys that individually talented, you don't need a system. My feeling is when you have guys that individually talented, you do need a system. Yeah, and and Westbrook is just the consummate non-system quarterback. Like he is, he is the system, and he's fantastic. It's just, look, I think it's going to get better. I mean, I think I think they're going to make up one day and, and yes. in the in the 2018 they'll have won 14 out of 16 and we'll see like oh okay here we are, but uh, I don't think it is I don't think I'm repraising Paul George because of it. Yeah, I just say George to me is a fascinating guy because like you you go through some like his career and his numbers and all that and in some ways he's like a no brainer and he's a perfect like you know stick him next to LeBron or maybe you know a good compliment to Lonzo in a lot of ways and and all but like at the same time like. There, there are certain deficiencies. Like when you look at, is he the? Oh, he's not a perfect ball player. Is he, if is, he were, then they wouldn't have been the eighth. Right. Like where, exactly. Like where is he? Like figuring out where he ranks in the sort of tier system of these five guys are transcendent, and any team that they're on is a playoff caliber team, and maybe a conference finals team just by their presence. And then there's like another group of guys who are like, okay, that's pretty close. Like you're, probably, it's gonna be hard to do better. You just need a a little bit better. B star to be the wingman. There. I think that's then, generally right. where he is. Okay, and, and then like, is or is he the like the, the at the top of the I don't know. tier? Who was the second best player on the Pacers last year? Turner. Yeah, Miles I mean, Turner. Yeah, I, I rest my case, and I love Miles Turner, but he's, he's, he's a second year guy. Right, he's not going to be you're right, and that's the, that's what makes it hard. But he also he put up his gigantic numbers and all that kind of stuff, particularly down the stretch. It wasn't great all year, and then came on late, just something with incredible. I still get, I mean, I'm, I'm like Andy, I just, I, it, it is, you get one shot to fire the gun, so to speak, and you can't do it wrong. You know, it's particularly now when, when it's harder to move contracts and, you know, the cap didn't explode in way people, ways people thought. You have to be really careful about what you do. And it goes back to that argument of, do you let the, these things grow? Do you trade it to get, you know, it's just, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to consider. There, there is a part of me that really, I, like, I would love to see the sliding doors of what the Lakers would never have the patience to do, which would be, this young group, don't add anyone to them. Just see. Like, I would love to see what they look like in four years without an A-lister added to them. Because, like, if you, if you look at the improvement that Ingram's made from last year to this year, it's pretty significant. I agree. So, in two years, if he could keep improving at that trajectory, you know, 
he may not be at a Russell Westbrook, Steph Curry, you know, the, the type of guy that you can really anchor a franchise around, but he could be at that Paul George level. And, you know, this year I feel like Julius Randle has, on a lot of levels, broken through. You know, if Lonzo can continue to improve after two, three years, you may have a bunch of guys that none of them are good enough to anchor a franchise, but they may be some pretty damn good players, all on the same team. And I'd just be curious to see what that looks like, because ultimately, and never, whether they should or shouldn't, will. I don't think the Lakers would have the patience yeah. to actually see it. I think they're going to have to add something else even with this collection of talent. Like, these guys are going to... I guess what I mean is without losing as many as possible. I guess that's what I'm saying is if if you could add, obviously, LeBron or Paul George to whoever's already here, great. Who wouldn't? But I mean without sacrificing as many. Because there's something about this group... It's really hard to do. I can't think of a team that's been able to do I know. And it's also, too, it's, it's, it's hard to do, you know, on a bunch of different levels. But I think the reason I'm so curious is with this franchise, it's something the Lakers never do. Like, the Lakers never want to do that. And I would just be curious to see what it looks like with the best collection of young talent the Lakers have had in eons. And we'll never find out. Uh, All right. Let's move on to the significant portion of today's podcast after the obligatory mention of the great work that you've done in ESPN. Plug everything else you got. You got a Ben Simmons piece. You got a podcast. Uh, Yeah, there's a piece about how... Ben Simmons' childhood playing Australian rules football has informed his freakishness as an NBA player. Footy. Um, I've got a Top Chef podcast with Tom Haversrow called Pack Your Knives that you can find on Apple Podcasts. If you are a fan of Top Chef, um, it's basically what if a couple basketball writers talked about Top Chef the way we talk about basketball. So, I mean, there's a certain level of geekery necessary to be admitted here or to at least appreciate it. You can listen to it. Uh, you might not understand it otherwise. And um, and we're really dorky. If you're a foodie, like say you don't follow Top Chef, but you're a foodie, would do you think you'd I, I think like this? There would be some peripheral. I mean, there would be bits and pieces. I mean, I do think ultimately we it kind helps of dive to in. watch the show. Yeah, I mean, the show okay. is, it's a competition show. It'd be like I'm sure there are people who don't watch NBA basketball who could listen to this podcast. I think they'd probably find it lacking. No, actually, that's not true. We, I have a few well, friends. You guys do the pop culture thing. I'm talking that's about true. like your like the actual up, right. The like, last conversation we just <laughs> Todd is not listening to that. Andy. He's skipping that part. Probably uh, 35th anniversary of Tootsie, which is a brilliant movie and one of Kevin's favorites and one of our favorites. Andy, where would you like to start? Well, actually, I, I wanted to, to begin it with, as I said earlier, I immediately thought of you, Kevin, because we've had conversations about this movie before, and I, and I knew immediately that this is one of your favorites. What is it? I guess sort of. To begin, what is it about this movie that you think brought you in so quickly or that it keeps you coming back? I mean, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the first thing, just from a personal standpoint, is it was a movie that I went to see with my folks even as a 9-slash-10-year-old. Like like a real night out on a Friday night at the Galleria Mall in Atlanta. And it was the first kind of big like grown up movie that my and I, I think at the time it was not, I mean it is kind of risque if you think about like taking a nine or a ten year old yeah movie. there's a lot going on here but I, I mean my parents were pretty trusting of me and like and they knew I kind of loved popular culture and movies already at that age and and like we all went and it had a playful kind of sense like hey it's, it's America's sweetheart Dustin Hoffman's kind of dressed up as a lady and isn't this fun um you know God and then you fall into the you sound like the old guy. They don't make American movies like this anymore, but just... They don't. Like, the romantic comedy that resides in these flawed characters who... who And we kind of celebrate their flaws in there. And, and it's... That... I, you know, it's absolutely... It, it's set in a world. It's such a palpable world. Kind of the struggling New York actor. Um, 
but you can tell the people who wrote it really, really understand the soul of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he's kind of a... Am I allowed to... I mean, he's kind of a prick. Like, he, he's he's truly... Like, Michael Dorsey is a... He, he is a wonderfully, charmingly reprehensible guy. Yes. And but not in kind of a bad Santa sort of way. Um, and I mean, Larry Gilbert's script is just so. Um, the scenes are are in and of themselves kind of stage plays. I mean, we're going to go through a couple of just like for sheer dialogue. I mean, you could take any standalone scene. I mean, any Terry Gar, um, Dustin Hoffman scene. There are about five of them that in and of themselves are hilarious as standalone scenes. Anytime Sidney Pollack is on the set. Uh, or on, on the screen. That is a standalone scene. Bill Murray's, you could do a montage of Bill Murray's moments and, and have the, and understand the sheer comedic value of... An unbilled Bill, Bill Murray, by the way. He actually was unbilled. He, he wanted to make sure that the movie didn't seem like it was a Bill Murray vehicle because at the time, you know, he was one of the biggest stars on the planet and, you know, out of deference to Dustin Hoffman, but I think really just the movie in general, he wanted to make sure that it wasn't marketed incorrectly. Well, the performances, I mean, from a movie making, because... When you watch it now, there obviously, particularly literally now, there are so many things you look at going, "Wow, that is you know is, is sort of powerful statements about um, about gender, about workplace politics, about sexuality, all kinds of stuff." Um, but just from a, a, a pure movie making standpoint, it is the performances are uniformly awesome. You know, whether you're talking, you know, Dustin Hoffman is great, Terry Garr is great, Jessica Lange is great, Dabney Coleman is great, uh, you know, just down Charles Durning is great. Is great as he always is. It's, it's so. Punky Brewster's dad. It's so tight. Like, well, it, 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 you uh, know, like for my, one of my favorite moments where I think you, you illustrate that from a, mo- just a pure movie making standpoint, Sidney Pollock's work and all is he, 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 you don't have this long thing of like, aha, I'm going to go dress as a woman. I will show them. And like, he says, you can't get work, and you cut boom, to him. Cut to the great. Uh, I'm going to the audition dressed as Dorothy in, in, in the traffic of New York. So I mean, yes. the other thing about your tight, I was thinking about about what you say was tight. It is a very hard thing in American movie making to have a movie that, as you say, is tight yet still affords the writers, the actors, the viewer, for that matter, the luxury to just kind of hang out. Like, if you think about the early... Think about the beginning of the first act. We're at that surprise party for Dustin Hoffman. There are any number of beats that don't advance the plot in any meaningful way. Bill Murray holding court, talking about his playwriting with a bunch of, you know, fellow kind of unemployed or or, or underemployed players. Little... Little vignettes of Dustin Hoffman trying to pick up women. I mean, none of it really. It, it, Terry Gar kind of in her in her full neurotic state. We spend about ten fifteen minutes at that at that party. There's not a lot that advances there, but we get to hang out, and I like hanging but, but out the, in, when I'm in a. I'll world. let you, but, but, but yeah. I think the hanging out is the advancement of the story because but that's the, my point. That's right, because the, the right that. the characters. You under the the roundedness of the characters is the story, really, because the story itself is it's it's fairly simple. I mean, it, when you kind of break it down, and then you know the the big moments it, it follows sort of the you know kind of big picture classic elements of farce and whatever, and you know you break it down and you have the the misidentification of people and the love triangles that are the wrong people are falling in love with the wrong people and all that kind of stuff and Shakespearean in that way. But 
the story, it's not a complicated story no. at all. And so by, and they recognize that, and by just creating incredibly well-rounded characters, that's why, you know, you know these people so well with every scene because there's so little fat that, and then I think that's what gets, you know, to what you're saying. Like, it's that, that, that brilliant combination of being able to make the hanging out the advance. Well, there, the there's story. nothing that really resembles a B-plot in this movie. Right. Like, everything, no, everything services... Like, oh, the roommate and his little child. Yeah, exactly. Everything right. services Dustin Hoffman's journey. I, I hate that cliche, but for lack of a better way of putting it, his forward motion in this movie. Everything serves that character. And everything is about that character's experience upon becoming Dorothy Michaels. And, you know, the, you, you mentioned the, the hanging out. Like, it reminds me a little bit of, um, I've always thought the opening 10 to 15 minutes of train spotting oh, is, fantastic. it's one of the greatest openings to a movie. Outside of the fact that it's exciting and it's kinetic and you got lust for life and a lot of the lines are funny, you learn everything that you really need to know to understand yes. the central characters in the first 10 to 15 minutes. And the opening montage of Tootsie, where you see, uh, you know, them either, doing acting classes or in you know in the the restaurant where they work you learn a lot about who they are in that opening I, I think that we just hit on the point of why don't they make movies anymore like this to me like broadcast news is another thing rather than spend the first 10 15 minutes of your script basically advancing 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 you know what? live with the characters and by virtue of doing that you actually that's far better than beat 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 like let's like that story then broadcast news perfect example they go to omaha work on that story about the uh, the guy who fought in angola i mean it's it's the it's the news piece they're they're building and it it, it, it you know we get the the three flashback scenes then we get this like 10 minutes of of these two people working together and then that conference where she meets Bill Hurt. And the funny thing is, is there's nothing really, if you think about the plot, what exactly advances? Nothing happens. We see them at where we're living with a week in a life of these people. And then boom. And then the plot starts. And that, to me, is what we don't have anymore, which is, and not to be you know kids these days, but like that's the brilliance. When you can actually have enough confidence as a filmmaker and as a film writer to not... Beat, 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 boom! But actually, just hey, ten, fifteen minutes, just hang out with you. Well, I mean, a great, a great, ex- you need to know. a great example is that you know how much you Crazy. learn. You you learn about Julie, uh, Jessica Lange's character, oh, just by how much you see from the beginning. She's always pouring a glass of wine. She's or always pouring that, that white wine. Beautiful scene where she comes in. Dustin Hoffman spills the papers. Yeah, and she has this like debonair. Just think of them as a firing squad. Mm-hmm. All that you get her, her you get her sardonicness. Her. A, a little bit of self-loathing. She can be a little bit of a mean girl. Like like all the things mm-hmm. that, that fill out that character. But she's unhappy. And you know oh, that yeah, she's know that. unhappy. Like she, she, to me, and I, she seems almost at times like she's maybe slurry a little bit. Like, you know, she's sort of never without that glass of wine. But we you, actually, you, we, we you realize really her. quickly she's really, wonder, really unhappy. I wonder what's on the page, too. I mean, you mentioned you, you've got the script, you got the script I, somewhere. I gotta find it. It's... There's a specificity that like that comes with the world too. Like you know, if Dustin Hoffman is teaching acting, it's almost surely because he's not succeeding as an actor, right? Um, and what he is telling these students is something that you might be high on, but you may be high on and right. You know, but and it's not even better. But it's it's something that. He may know the right answer, but he's not able to translate it for himself. And which so, we get in that city. Right, and that frustrating scene. And, and so, you know, when you see them in the restaurant, how in the precision side, some of this comes from excellent direction and excellent. I mean, this is, you know, like, it's hard to, I mean, it's, 
Actually, you do sort of see more movies like this now where they're like, geez, man, everybody's in this movie. But, like, this cast... Like, Terry Garr is doing something that's very difficult to do. Oh, she's, so she's doing a brilliant performance of a bad actress. Yes. And that is hard to do. Because <laughs> she's... Not good. Like the the character that she is playing By is way, a terrible. Another actress. favorite scene. Getting ready for that audition. Yeah, oh, <laughs> often coaching her through that line for a role that he ultimately right. gets. Basically, through the wisdom he gleans from trying to supervise this terrible actress friend of hers, get her ready. Comes to the conclusion she can't do it. But I All right. Let's 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 think about the 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 the, the unlikable lead thing, which you mentioned, Kevin, is important because you know the, the the Dustin Hoffman character. Uh, you know, Michael Dorsey is not—he's not like he's kind of a terrible guy. He kind of is he's incredibly self-centered. Uh, he's narcissistic. Oh, he's self-involved. He women so this, party, right. he's, he's this and you know, there are examples of this through the movie, and, and one where I have a question uh, that I'll ask you guys later, but it, it becomes kind of relevant. This is him in in the office. He is play, with Sidney Pollock, who's the director, but also playing his agent. Uh, an excerpt where he's trying to tell Sidney Pollack to get him work, and Sidney Pollack is explaining why he can't. Buddy, you've got one of the worst reputations in this town, Michael. Nobody will hire you. Are you saying that nobody in New York will work with me? Oh, no, that's too limiting. Nobody in Hollywood wants to work with you either. I can't even send you up for a commercial. You play the tomato for 30 seconds. They want a half a day over schedule because you wouldn't sit down. Yes, it wasn't logical. You were a tomato! A tomato doesn't have logic. A tomato can't move. That's what I said. So if you can't move, how's he going to sit down, George? I was a stand-up tomato, a juicy, sexy beefsteak tomato. Nobody does vegetables like me. I did an evening of vegetables off Broadway. I did the best tomato, the best cucumber. I did an on-deep salad that knocked the critics on their ass. He's so self-important. I mean, in the worst kind of actor. The idea of an salad that knocked the critics on his ass. He's basically describing like the Fruit of the Loom guys in a right. commercial. <laughs> like he was that good as one of the Fruit of the Loom guys that they walked away saying, I've never seen anything it's like that. It's hard before. to do an earnest movie with a character with that much self-deception. I mean, he is Sancho Panza. And what's great about the first 20 minutes of the movie is how you, it is so adept at actually getting to see, you, you see scenes not through the perspective of Dorsey, but like the girl he's trying to, pick up at the party like why are you so wired you see him through like his agent being like like you're impossible and and that's amazing is you get to chart this guy's as you would say journey but you actually do it through the people who have to kind of suffer through him even like terry gar is ridiculous but doesn't deserve the behavior that he subjects her to right you know standing him up for dinner lying to her constantly um and, it, and it's ironic because we're going to hear a scene later where dabney coleman basically tries to explain away his behavior that dustin hoffman's calling him on and the truth of the matter is is dustin hoffman's kind of guilty of that it's the same, same the same behavior and i just well and what's what's great too about it is is like and this is what makes i think the character we and also the unlikable character as a lead thing work they they show the scene of the scene of him, I guess he's playing Tolstoy, and they want him to walk to center stage and then die. And he rightly points out, wait, you want me to get up and walk and then die? Like, none of it, and from an actor's standpoint, none of he's correct. None of that makes sense. But it's like, to some degree, it's like, just do it. You know, he, and he, you know, he won't let himself do it and it's like and, and i love that push pull of sometimes these irredeemable people or he's not really irredeemable but these unlikable people are unlikable in part because they're correct yes. 
And they're so inflexible in their belief system that that you they they can't get out of their own way. Well, it's interesting you said too, Kevin, that that you see Michael Dorsey through the eyes of Julie, Jessica Lang, or Terry Garr, or you know even Jeff, his roommate, his agent, but also through I think Dabney Coleman's character, uh, the soap opera director, who's also dating Julie. Michael Dorsey in actually full gets to, Dabney Coleman bloom. It, oh. Wonderful. Da- there was I, I talked uh, earlier or last earlier this month with John Batham, uh, who directed uh, Saturday Night Fever upon the 40th anniversary of that movie. But also he directed War Games. There is no greater on screen a hole in modern cinema yep. history. Dabney Coleman's run in the 80s is unprecedented at playing genuinely unlikable people that you want to be around. An underrated role. Uh, his short live series for television, Buffalo Bill, yes, which is ridiculously smart. Or the, the movie Short Time, if anyone's ever yes. Short Time, is a very I still underrated. His, I still quote his monologue from Modern Problems, but, uh, but frequently. In, but in uh, that character, Michael actually gets to see himself. Like he actually gets to sort of have an out of body experience let's, watching let's get himself. to that because the the sexual politics of here, you know, particularly now, are incredibly relevant. For people who don't know, Dabney Coleman is a He's dating the Jessica, Jessica Lange's character and is wildly sexist, you know, in that sort of very 80s, 90s kind of men run the world sort of way. And he's cheating on Jessica Lange. It's the way he kind of treats the women on yeah. the set. And by the way, it, and, and it's done adeptly. It's never he's never copping a feel. No, it's, but it's it's hey, it's a dismissive. He calls, get a, I need a bagel and cream cheese. Right. Go get that. He has, or, he Tootsie calls, is the name of the movie because he calls her Tootsie. Right. Like, there's a wonderful, you know, hey, Julie, do you want anything? Asked the, the, the set assistant. And before she was about to say she would, and he's like, oh, no, she's fine. Right. Like, like he's just it's, it's kind of an unthinking indifference and disregard of women uh, in in the workplace. All right, so this is a scene later in the movie where she uh, Dabney Coleman comes over to take Jessica Lang out, and uh, as Dorothy, Dustin Hoffman, and uh, Dabney Coleman have this exchange. Hi, honey. You don't mind if I call you honey when we're not working, do you? Nice dress. Thank you. You don't like me, do you? I mean, I can respect that, but there's uh, there's not many women I can't make like me. Why don't you like me? I don't like the way you treat Julie. Oh? Mm-hmm. I don't like the way you patronize her. I don't like the way you deceive her. I don't like the way you lie to her. What do you mean? You want me to go on? No, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> Look, Dorothy, I, I never promised Julie I'd be exclusive. I never said I wouldn't see other women. It's just that I, I know she doesn't want me to see other women, so I lied to her to keep from hurting her. That's very convenient. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Look, look at it from my side. See, see, if a woman wants me to seduce her, I... You know, I usually do, but then she starts pretending like I promised her something. Then I start pretending like I promised her something. But I mean, in the end, I'm the one that's exploited. <laughs> and, you know, Dustin Hoffman's next line is that's BS. And he explains why and then says, you know, I understand you a lot better than you think, obviously, for obvious reasons. That, But like, it's that it's not just I mean, there's a certain doggery to it, but there's also like just a a casual and accepted sexism that. Michael Dorsey, Dustin Hoff, becomes aware of 
through playing this character that is but, embodied in a lot of ways, you know, in this Dabney Coleman thing. And it's it ranges from the little stuff. You don't mind if I call you honey when we're not at work. I, I made this accommodation for you because, you know, that was... Pro- but now it's at... That's to, true. Yeah, to, um, you know, I, it's, so I'm the one being exploited by not being able to cheat on my girlfriend well, no, isn't in the way this I kind want of, to. Forgetting politics aside, isn't that one of the greatest distillations of sort of just kind of conventional male thinking and yes. sexual <laughs> dynamics? Just that somehow, like, some, you can you can somehow twist this into victimization that, yeah. like, yeah, by being, yeah I, by, by being forced to pretend that I like her, it's I'm the one being exploited. Well, I mean, it's, it's the great line in Seinfeld from George Costanza. It's not a lie if you believe it. And clearly, I mean, I don't even know how hard uh, he needs to work to lie to himself because this is just who he is. But he knows he's lying. I mean, he knows that he's not treating her well. But the other thing that's he's great, rationalized and the it. great thing about it, too, is, you know, there's a scene earlier in the movie where Dustin Hoffman finds himself at a big Hollywood party after another phenomenal conversation with Sidney Pollack on the street, um, finds himself at a Hollywood party with Jessica Lange. And uses a line that she had given to him and said, I wish men would just come up to me and say, I think you're very interesting and all these. And she throws a drink in his face. And like just the scummery of that, like to right away just dive into and I want to I think he says I want to like make love with you or something like that. Right. right. Exactly verbatim, like sort of what she said she wishes men would say. But. Not, it's not really, you know, he hadn't under, he wasn't yet listening and understanding in the way that, you know, See, he I, I took that, I took the, I interpreted that scene differently. I, I, I think it is, whether you're female or male, or, like the truth is, we're all a little bit dishonest about what we think we want. I don't think it was, oh, he didn't say it right. I think it's that, look, I mean, Jessica Lange's as full of it as anybody else. That that we all tell ourselves what we want. Right. Like, I don't think it was a misexecution by Dustin. No, Hoffman. I don't. But I'm saying he he took that thing, and I, I'm agreeing with you. He took that thing that she said because he didn't really understand her yet, or really what she means by that, and what that encompasses, and all that, and just thought, oh. I've got this magic line that I can use to take this girl to bed. I I interpret it differently than you do. I I just think, like, I don't think that's what's going on. I think you're right, but I think that's what he thought was going to happen. I think he thought he could take that line and make it work. Oh, oh, I'm sure he did. Yes. But, but like, yeah, I, I think, but she's also is self-deception. No question. I mean, the movie is very much about self-deception. Terry Garr is self-deceptive. Um, you know, obviously, Michael Dorsey and, and Dustin Hoffman, uh, Jessica Lange. There's, there's, I think, self-deception, Dabney Coleman. Like, to me, that's one of the great themes. And it's not mean about it. It's just that we all have a, a, a certain we, – we conceive of what we think our belief system is in, in, with relation to romance and life. And the truth of the matter is, is the, the things that we think we hold true – I, we, we don't. I, we don't. And that there's there. Everybody is engaged in self deception, and it's not cynical. It's just it's it's part of a. It's a human flaw, right? And obviously, she doesn't remember that exchange at the end of the movie, and there's no necessarily any reason that she would. It's a twenty second exchange, right? At a because party. it's something you just tell yourself. Well, but it's a, but it's a twenty second uh, exchange that you know when she meets Michael Dorsey earlier in the movie and throws a drink in his face, she doesn't. Put two and two together. That, oh, that's the guy I threw the drink in his face at this party a month ago or whatever, three weeks ago, or whatever it was. And she wouldn't necessarily because she's constantly being hit on and 
objectified and all these other things because that's her life. That's the world she lives in. That's how her boyfriend treats you. That's how soap operas treat her and all these other things. So she wouldn't even think to remember the guy. And I, I, that, that to me is something that's stuck. Unless you disagree, like, I don't, because I don't think there's any reason she would have connected A to B there. No, I, I technically I, she had met him. No, I mean, it's funny. I mean, she might have maybe, I think she'd be more likely to actually connect A and B to like, wait a minute, I said this to Correct. Dorothy. Like an hour ago, an hour ago, <laughs> right. and now this is being told by Michael, who now that I think about it, sort of looks, looks like a little, a, bit, a little yeah. bit like if you put a wig in glasses. Not like Clark can't take the glasses off and he's super. It's in your Brian. Sure. You said earlier the the scummery of, uh, or you or Kevin, I don't remember the scummery of the of that line. And you know, I sort of you have to deal with the elephant in the room right now, which is the scummery of Dustin Hoffman allegedly and these accusations that are coming out about his behavior in late 70s through the 80s maybe beginning of the 90s and it's interesting because like this this is now becoming more of a prevalent question that you have to start asking about different people during this period now where you know in the me too movement where people there's a reckoning going on and people's past behavior is coming to light and it's being evaluated in the present and it raises this question of what do you what do you do with Dustin Hoffman? I guess sort of generally, you know, moving forward, does, you know, do you employ him again? Does he work again? But how do you regard the art at the time? And it's interesting. In some ways, this is a movie that kind of describes some of the behavior that he's accused. Oh, there's of. no question. I mean, it's it's yeah. actually ironic because Dustin. I've seen interviews with Dustin Hoffman being talked about. There's there's this very uncomfortable exchange. That I'm sure a lot of people have seen between him and John Oliver. Um, when they were doing a panel for the Meyerowitz movie, or, or no, it was a 20th anniversary of Wag the Dog. And John Oliver confronted him about a lot of this and ended up a back and forth that I'm not, at the end of the day, I'm not really sure went anywhere. No, I mean, but both players are completely unlikable in that exchange, to right. be honest. But I've seen Dustin Hoffman bring up Tootsie as a movie where he grew to understand the feminine perspective. Like he said before that, you know, I saw how men looked through me or looked past me when I was dressed up as a an unattractive woman, you know, very unfeminine. Which is a joke woman. they make throughout the sure, movie. Of course. But with these accusations, it makes you wonder, well, how much could it clearly have sunk in? Because you are guilty of the very bad behavior that in theory this movie would have enlightened you from engaging in. And it's it's interesting to sort of think about you know what you take away from that, but also just how do, how do you regard the art? Like what do you do in these individual cases? Yeah, I mean it's not a question. I mean, when when good people and bad people produce good art, I, we don't really have an answer for this. I mean, I don't. Um, am I going to think less of Tootsie? No, it's a movie that has informed the way I think about. You know, I mean, it made me want to be a writer. It, uh, it, it it's a movie that. You know, it, that I, for the reasons we've been spending the last 30 minutes, respect. And, and I, I'm not, I mean, look, I, I, I think, I think there have been men in the past couple of weeks who've been banished from public life for good reason. Some of the behavior is criminal. It's, it's highly inappropriate. It's, it is, um, you know, they, they probably should not be gainfully employed if in industries where they're going to abuse their power. I mean, it's just, there's a certain juncture, which I, I don't know what to do. I mean, you know, I mean, last night at Staples Center, you know, there was public adulation for a guy who has been accused of and, and some of whose behavior has been proved to be worse than some of the men who have been fired from their magazine jobs and whatever. I, and I don't I'm not suggesting that, there, that the ceremony should have gone off any other way. But I, I'm saying is if we want to start, you know, issuing 
edicts on how we are supposed to approach men who have done terrible things um, with regard to gender, with regard to, to, to power dynamics, um, with regard to, to workplace behavior. I, I don't know where we go from here. Like, are we, am I supposed to not enjoy Annie Hall? And I'm not saying you're robbing me of Annie Hall. People, By the way, and if one wants to say, you know what, I used to like Tootsie. Now I can't watch it because every time I see Dustin Hoffman, he makes me sick. I don't care what the context is. My answer is, I get it. I don't happen to feel that. It's, it's in really, and this is something that I find a, a really fascinating topic because it's ultimately about compartmentalization. And it's something that we do as fans of blank all the time, whether you're talking about sports fans, where you have somebody on your team that you know is not a good person. Right. But you want your team to be successful, so you find a way to rationalize rooting for that person's success. I cheer you, for physical pain of other human beings watching football on so- Saturdays, Sundays, and which Thursdays. is, by the way, like kind of I don't anymore. Right, right. I mean, I, I not because I, I'm a better person. I, I just it's a, it's a certain, I don't really. I, I mean, right. I'm saying I'm in the royal eye. I mean, football makes me much more uncomfortable than I, mean, I cringe at giant right. hits more than I used to. But big, I still watch football. I'm watching more for as much for fantasy now as other things. But I still watch football. But we, we do. And this, I know exactly. We, like, What's we know Miles Davis people. was terrible. Yes. My, we know Miles Davis was terrible. Right. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with Kind of Blue. I don't know either. And, I mean, but it's it's one of the hardest but, questions as a consumer. Look, and as Look, a, I would assume, yeah. I, I know the answer with Brian, but I'm going to assume the answer with you, all three of us Beatles fans. John Lennon, yeah. okay, well, two of the three. <laughs> Mo, most of the time, it's a pretty good assumption. Yeah. John Lennon beat up his first wife, was an awful father to Julian Lennon. And he is also one of the most universally beloved People in pop culture of like the last what, and by the way, seventy years, for, and for some of, and also in large part because of his prescriptions for his sort of vision of civil society. Right. Imagine no, really, you know, like right. I, I don't know. Jim Jim Brown just had a statue erected in front of whatever the hell they call the stadium in Cleveland. Jim Brown's done some bad things, right. and all in this his past. to say, I, I'm not excusing any bad behavior. No. I just don't know how we're these landmines. As we go through our, our catalogs of DVDs or, 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 or CDs or our music libraries, like I don't – where – how are we are we supposed to sort of create Sabazdat out of anything that has been produced or stars a problematic person? Mel Gibson was to some degree excommunicated from Hollywood for a certain period of time and then he comes back. Was it long enough? I don't know. Was what he was accused of – like what's the sentence? Like it's all incredibly complicated. And then when you factor in the idea that most of these people who are incredibly brilliant at whatever it is they do, sports, politics, art, whatever it is, also bring with it a certain ego right. and a certain they are accommodated because of their talent. They are um, they are they have influence and power because of their talent. And as we all understand or are learning to understand, most of these things are power dynamic things as much as they are sexual things or whatever they might be. And I just I don't you're it's never going to stop. It's not like, you know, this moment that we're in now is going to eliminate powerful, particularly powerful men doing things to uh, women, to other men that they shouldn't do. And so. I don't. You're you're going to have to compartmentalize stuff. You're going to end up crossing everything off your list. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you could go ahead and throw the entire Miramax catalog, this, that, and the other. Woody Allen. Um, and again, none of this excuses it. We, we actually have ended up where we, we started, which is I don't know what the proper punishment or no how idea. you're supposed to no consume idea. art produced by terrible people. Um, okay, I want to swing. I want to swing it back though yeah. to a very positive, more lighthearted part because I, this definitely deserves acknowledgement. I know it's something all three of us appreciate with Tootsie. 
Sidney Pollack is so oh, damn God, good in this so movie. Good. He's so great. I mean, forget the, the direction and all that is fantastic. The script is one of the best scripts out there. But his performance as Dustin Hoffman's agent is so damn good. Oh, so good. And it comes in a line in Sidney Pollack's career of great performances. He is a really underappreciated Well, he's actor. directing great movies. Yes. I mean, that's the funny thing is, um, and it's, fu- I wish we could have played like the four minute scene of the, of, of, of the four minute version of the, of the full scene, uh, which we obviously can't do. Um, there's so many wonderful little of that scene in his office, but then also God to the scene. You should lose your standing as a cult failure. Yeah. Oh, he, he's, I'm not getting sucked a, into this conversation. His comedic timing in this movie and other movies is fantastic. Husbands but you, and wives. I was going to say husbands and wives, eyes wide shut. Michael Clayton, like he he's was a good great dramatic. Like we we were talking yesterday while we were waiting for I think Kobe to uh, do his pregame yes. uh, thing. Like if you ever want to know what what sports writers are talking about while they wait for those press conferences to start, it's it's Sidney Pollack. Yes, it's not, <laughs> that's what some sports writers like he, are not all of them, but many. He didn't necessarily Sidney Pollack have a lot of range as an actor, but like. The thing he did, basically like the hard, like basically the hard edged, disillusioned New Yorker, whether comedically or dramatically, like I was thinking about it today, he's almost like a harder edged Albert Brooks. See, I think of him as the really intimidating guy at your dad's office. Okay. Like your dad's boss. Well, there's or, that scene or, in Changing, uh, or his role, I should say, but also a scene in Changing Lanes with Ben Affleck, where right, Ben like, Affleck like, has to deal like with him. Like the, the company picnics on Sunday, yeah. and you're in the station wagon, and your dad says, do not piss off Mr. Schwartz or whoever. But he, he's just, <laughs> he would be Mr. Schwartz. But he's just, he's so great in this movie. And he was just such a great actor. He was a really a terrific actor. Last question I want to ask you guys. Do you buy her at the end? Because I've seen some criticism of it that she would... Because it is a pretty intense violation, what Dustin yes. Hoffman does. And we, we end up playing the scene, but you know, there's, there's a, a beautiful scene where he's, as Dorothy, asking her, like, why do you drink so much? You know, you know, And really, not just as an actor running lines, but engaging her as a person and cause out of concern. And, and all the stuff that goes on with the two of them and their relationship, it's a horrible violation of the, uh, that, that he has done to her, that she would... Give him a shot at the end as a boyfriend. Maybe I'm just trying to explain it away on behalf of a movie I, I, I love so dearly, but I, I do because I think I mean, it, and it's it's airtight in the movie, both by virtue of the performance, the writing, and the direction. She's truly influenced by this person. I mean, she 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 says, "I miss Dorothy," and she says it in the most earnest and, and believable way possible. And mm-hmm. you do believe her. I mean, there's. Hoffman is so good. She is so good. The character is so well drawn that it is it is impossible to believe that she doesn't miss Dorothy. I mean, this is probably at that point of the most single influential person in life who has uh, inspired her to be a better actress, a more assertive woman, um, break off an abusive relationship uh, in some ways as strength in a relationship with the father. Like, like I mean, Dorothy Michaels has been as important a person in, in her life over the past however many months it is. And, like, I do think she truly misses Dorothy, as conflicted as she is about Michael Dorsey. She truly misses Dorothy Michaels. And in the, in the, in the effort to get, just recapture any substance of Dorothy Michaels, she says to herself at that moment, like, okay, if this person inhabits or, or the soul of Dorothy Michaels is present in this person's soul, 
Right. And, okay. And has, I, I might be willing to make a bargain. I've, I've tolerated a lot of scumbags. Right. And what Dustin life. Hoffman's position is, is my, the soul of Dorothy Michaels has conquered the soul of Michael Dorsey. She's well, here, right? What does he yes. say? He's a, yeah, she's he's right, right here. here. He's right here. It's hard to find people who understand you. I mean, just in yes. general, it's very difficult to find people in life, particularly people that you want to be close with, who really understand you. Like feeling understood is a very secure feeling. And for her, she actually feels understood even by this guy who was not honest with her at the origin of their relationship. He still understands her. And, and I think, and I, I agree. I was, I asked the question because I've seen it before. It pays off to me, pays off to me because you see the profound sadness that she's had throughout the movie. And her kind of connecting to that and understanding it. And not in a way that she wants to be with him out of self-pity anymore, but because she wants to be happy. Like, I'm less be- – if, if you want me to profess disbelief, it would be Charles Durning. That like he, he would go to yes. the bar in Syracuse, and then like I would give him a little noogie, and ah, that was a quick, that like, was a quick forgivable. That was if if you want to ask me, hey, is there anything in the movie that that you're not faithful to as a truth? Right. That would be like, yeah, did I don't you, completely buy. Did this. you did you did you like them cherries? Do you do you like them cherries? No, <laughs> you know, it, it's yeah. I mean, because he, Charles Durning is presented as a a very kind but also very old fashioned. Yes traditional type guy men were men women were women right. neither of them uh neither the, the twain shall meet right. so to right. speak and he does say it would be very different if i kissed you um which is which, kind of which, revealing of a but, it, but it's funny you know. though because i mean like as much as you know that sort of goes for the easy you know gay panic joke it's also like okay no, but, you we didn't cross a line correct into true that's deception we're like where you right truly that's what i'm took getting at. me to a place where i would be you know, uncomfortable, like unfairly uncomfortable. Like, and that's one of the things that I think is really great about the movie is that, you know, it's, this is hard to pull off. It's like equal parts farce, social commentary, and like character stuff. And they don't get away for like when, what's his name? The, the old soap actor who is also brilliant. Who plays, who plays George that role? Gaines. I would yeah. say Punky Brewster's Punky dad. Punky Brewster's dad, um, who is really funny in the movie. Um, yes. kind of like, he, they don't shy away from like what he was doing when he got up and tries to, to is, is essentially rape. And Dustin Hoffman acknowledges that as such. And it's, it's a weird scene because you're watching it and you're not as uncomfortable because you know it's a man and another man who's yeah. trying to escape. But what he's doing is sexual assault. And it would have been a very different scene in a very different movie if at the end of it, when Bill Murray comes in and uh, accidentally sort of breaks it up and the, and this soap actor leaves, if they didn't acknowledge that, and he does, and it's again, it's another one of these signposts of, of Dustin Hoffman, at least as a character, recognizing behavior that isn't, that is yeah. tolerated that shouldn't be. And it is interesting. I mean, it is, I don't know that you could play that scene you as could. humorously today as you could. I mean, it is sexual assault, irrespective of the fact that, as you right. say, as an audience, we're a little more okay because we know that there's a man hiding in there. We, we, we and, don't it's far, and it's, it's, it's three quarters away and it's far. You know, right. you know it's not going to go past right. a certain point. But there's an intent to what's going yes. on, however comedically presented. And it leads to the great line, you know, why did you even let him into your apartment? He was he was singing. He's that good a singer. It's just, it's so... The, it's so well written. Larry, Kudos to Larry Gelbert, because that is a hell of a script. It is so good. Uh, all right, well, what's the next anniversary of a movie coming out that you really like? Give us, like, three right, movies. So what, today's... All right, so let's think. We well, are. we're going to have... 
30 years of Goodfellas in two years. Ooh. We've got... Let us reconvene. Yes. We've <laughs> We're got, about a year away from Rushmore. We missed... If you're a fan Network, of Rushmore. Which I think is so prophetic and prescient and, like, has so many amazing scenes that just... And peripheral characters in the whole deal. I mean, if you're looking for a lot of, uh, you know, round years, 25 or 30, you know, start thinking about 98. Yeah, let's go the way... What are the years we're looking at? Uh, we're looking at 1998, 1993. When was Boogie Nights? Boogie Nights is 97. Right, because y'all did that. Okay, so coming up, that. hilarious... Uh, 25 year anniversary of Schindler's or 35 Schindler's list. Well, That'll go. be hilarious. The sorrow and the pity. <laughs> <laughs> wait, so, so wait, wait, hold on. Let's see. We're going to get so 93. 93 would be a great year. So oh, 93. Uh, crying game. That's no, no, no. 35. Crying, crying game. game. No, that's 90. I'm pulling up movies from. I want to say 92. Um, because it's important we plan fugi- this out. The fugitive will be coming up. Yeah. Oh. Um, I'm not sure that requires a pocket. It's a great movie though. Uh, okay. what else came out in 93? Who's <laughs> down for Jurassic Park? Oh, well, who's that? Uh, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, yeah. Groundhog Day, The Groundhog Fugitive, Day. Philadelphia. What, what was like? What, what, give me the Miramax. Uh, the Miramax playing. slate. Yeah, give me, give me, the, give me the good stuff. Seattle. I'm not a good mainstream guy. Not because I'm falling down. That was a period of my life where I wore black and was gothy and living in New York and wanted to like ground falling. Falling down's excellent. Falling That's actually excellent a movie. good one. Um, uh, firm. <laughs> yeah, there's just a lot of. Is that romance? Did, is that romance eating, didn't age well? Did it? Is ninety three? Oh, the piano. But that's not what's eating the Sandlot. That's a. Uh, uh, is what's eating Gilbert Grape ninety really three? Nice I believe so. I'd be down for a what's eating Gilbert Grape retrospective. You know what? He was really good in that. He was real. Okay. Was really Again, ninety eight. Do you like Rushmore? I love Rushmore. Ninety eight. That's a year from now. If not sooner, we'll do Rushmore. Put it on your calendar. Benny in June, nineteen ninety three. Here we go. Let's let's do Rushmore. Um, all right. Oh, oh, A Simple Plan is 98. Just send us a list of your favorite movies. I'll and we'll, do this. we'll do the legwork. Um, all right. Well, Kevin, thanks for coming in. Shortcuts. Oh, Ooh. That's you know what? That's, yeah. yeah. That, that, that could happen. <laughs> well, Dazed and Confused. Dazed and Confused. Okay. Dazed right. and Confused. That's the easiest one. I, by the way, I, I, I've seen it. I saw it recently. It holds up. For the it holds 30th up time. It's, it's so good. Talk about a movie that you get to hang out. It's so good. We could, it's uh, all right. hanging out. It's, oh my god! All right, we'll, we'll do days to confuse. Okay, right. we'll take your uh, again. The uh, let's make the, this a thing. The what's the name of the podcast? It's the Pack Your, Pack knives. your knives podcast, as they say on uh, Top Chef. Pack your knives and go. Check out the story in ESPN the magazine. Kevin, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me.